This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Mark, what the hell is going on this week? What the hell is going on is we finally got, after four years of waiting, we've got the Durham report into the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation. And this thing is a damning condemnation of the FBI, of its internal misconduct. Durham has concluded that the full investigation into the case should have never happened. The FBI didn't believe that it had probable cause to pursue these search warrants, uh, and yet it misled the FISA court. Tell everybody what the FISA court is. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is the national security court that they go to when they have classified intelligence and they want to pursue a uh, a search warrant under national security grounds. They didn't, they didn't even believe their own intelligence uh, going into it. It was all flimsy. Uh, then they got the Steele dossier, which was full, full of lies, paid for by the Clinton campaign and the DNC and produced by them. And they went to they went to the FISA court with that. And it turns out that the primary source for that was a guy named Igor Danchenko, who they did not disclose to the FISA court or to anyone the fact that he had been previously under investigation by the FBI in a counter espionage investigation for ties to wait for it. Russian intelligence. He worked at the Brookings Institution, our neighbors around the corner here, um, and had actually offered money to a Brookings associate who was going to go into the Obama administration, asked this individual if they would be willing to give up classified information in exchange for money. This individual passed that back to the FBI. They began investigating him and found that he had ties to Russian intelligence. And they were starting to investigate him, and then they thought he left the country, so they dropped the whole matter. Of course, he hadn't then, left the country, but that was another, that was a whole other And then he shows up screw-up. again and, as the source of the Steele dossier. And they're like, ooh, you and seem nice. He wrote, he gave, provided 80% of the intelligence for this, and Durham actually says that what they did not consider in the process of that is that the information he was providing, so the Steele dossier, was either in whole or in part Russian disinformation. So they, this could have been... All the information in the Steele dossier could have been coming from a Russian spy who was providing Russian disinformation, and they just brush that off as if it's no big deal. So our listeners who probably haven't been paying close attention to the whole Russian collusion disaster that happened in the earlier part of the Trump administration for a while... Uh, for those of you who are of an age, will will think to yourselves, wow, this sounds like that Boris and Natasha stuff from the Rocky and Bullwinkle <laughs> show, because that's what the FBI sounds like, right? They sound like absolutely cartoonish conspiracists who are pursuing a political agenda to besmirch a candidate who they don't like. And of course, we have all of the quotes from all of the players in which they talk about how much they hate Trump and how bad he'll be for the country and how the evidence that they have isn't good enough, but that they'll have to go for it anyway. And all of this comes out in the, the, the Durham report. But I have to tell you, Mark, I mean, what this, what all of this underscores to me is, is a fear of government. 
Um, yeah. And, and I don't, I, I'm, you know, you guys know me, you, you know, our listeners know me. I'm not a crank. Uh, I generally speaking have more than a, an average man's respect for not just the people who serve in our government, but the people who serve in our law enforcement and in our military and who keep us safe. This I wrote the, a whole book defending them. Right, exactly. <laughs> and this Durham report is not awesome. You know, didn't lead to serious prosecutions. There are lots of defects with it. He weirdly and inexplicably doesn't talk to a lot of the major players, and I still don't understand why. And we ask our we ask our guest about that too. But nonetheless, it makes me feel like if they can do this to Donald Trump, who's hugely rich, who became the president of the United States, what can they do to me? Well, that's the thing. So, you know, this is why the sort of the whole deep state conspiracy theory resonates, because we have evidence here that the FBI and and again, I would I want to say that uh, the vast majority of people in the FBI are good people. Who and you're seeing a lot of whistleblowers coming forward with with information. And you had who a lot are of, getting fired? Excuse yeah. me. Who are getting who are getting fired or punished? Yeah. Inside the FBI. So maybe the vast majority of people are serving are, but the leadership of the FBI. No, that's exactly right. What the hell? It, but you. But even in this Durham report, you have an uh, example of like the FBI liaison in in London who is listening to these people and saying like, "This is all you have." And they're like, yeah, it's pretty, pretty bad. And the British intelligence are telling him, yeah, that's nothing. You got nothing. And he's coming forward and telling Durham this. So, you know, there's a, there are good people in the FBI. But the problem is, is that it seems from from what Durham said that they knew that they didn't have probable cause. They uh, had information that Danchenko could be a Russian asset. They also the other thing that's that's very uh, that didn't get a lot of attention is that they also had intelligence that in July 2016, the and this is from the from the Durham report, U.S. intelligence agencies obtained insight into Russian intelligence analysis, alleging that U.S. presidential candidate Hillary Clinton had approved a campaign plan to stir up a scandal against U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump by tying him to Putin and the Russian hacking of the Democratic National Committee, and this intelligence stream was serious enough that John Brennan, the CIA director, came into the Oval Office and briefed the president of the United States about it. And this is, again, Durham report. According to handwritten notes, CIA director Brennan briefed President Obama and other national security officials on the intelligence, including, quote, the alleged approval by Hillary Clinton on July 26, 2016, of a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by Russian security services. So you had not a good deal of evidence that Donald Trump was, in fact, engaged with the Russians. And you had a questionable source for the Steele dossier. The Steele dossier was funded by the Clinton campaign, which would give some credence to this. And on top of that, and you're you getting, you have credible you're getting, information that the Clinton campaign is trying to stir up a false conspiracy. Exactly. So serious that it is hand walked into the Oval Office by the Democratic Oval Office, by the Democratic Director of Central Intelligence. And, and this is the guy, by the way, who who was one of the signers of the letter oh, saying God. that the Hunter Biden laptop was was Russian disinformation. So this is not like a this is not like an anti Clinton guy. And he goes into the office and Oval Office and briefs this. You've got all this contravening in, information. They have no probable cause for these warrants. They falsified information. This FBI agent Kleinsmith literally altered an email to justify a uh, FISA warrant which gave, for which he and the FBI are rebuked by the FISA judge. And their instinct is to just go for it. And I, so it suggests that it's political. 
It suggests. I think there's no there's no doubt that this is political. And, you know, look, I say this in our interview, but I want to say it again. You know, basically, I think that the prevailing attitude in Washington and the prevailing attitude in the mainstream press is all of this is justified because Trump is a very bad man. Yeah. And I have no dispute. Trump is a very bad man, in my opinion. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have rights. <laughs> you know, even bad people in America have rights. That's why we are America. And that's the thing that just sticks in my craw so much. When I see the headlines, and you mentioned this headline from the New York Times, but it merits mentioning again. And when it came out, I tweeted it out because I it was as if the New York Times had Headline. written the story. After years of political hype, the Durham inquiry failed to deliver. Exactly. I mean, the New York Times could have written that last year because that was always the story they were going to write because they are in the tank for the Democratic Party. And I hate saying that because it makes me sound, again, like a crank. Maybe I am a crank, but <laughs> I'm becoming a crank. You've always but been it a is, crank, Danny. But it is... It, it, just think about this, guys. It's an outrage. How can you believe what you read? How can you believe what our law enforcement says? It, 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 we, it's we so depressing. We must destroy our institu democratic institutions in order to save them. Right. It's basically the, the thing. And so when, and what this does is this feeds into the into the Trump narrative and helps him now in 2024. Right. Because what he what his message now is they tied me up with this politicized investigation that turned out to be nothing but a conspiracy. They took away two years of my presidency. And they, and so, of and course, how can you not believe they stole the election? And so exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. This is why trust in the free press is at an all time low in our country today because people a lot 74 million people voted for Donald Trump like or not right and those people were told by the first they were told that Trump had colluded with Russia and it turned out to be a conspiracy theory and then a few years later they're told by the same media no he didn't the election wasn't stolen and they're like the boy who cried wolf Right. They're like people people say you lied to me the first time. Why should I believe you now? So if you want to know why people scratch their heads and say, why do millions and millions of Republicans believe the election was stolen when we know from the case he didn't win a, a, a single substantive case, including Trump judges who shot him down on the election being stolen. Mm -hmm. But why do people believe the lie, the big lie? Because the media has lied to them repeatedly. And apparently and our state institutions are willing to tell lies exactly. in order to further their political agenda. So, yeah. They do more damage to our institutions of democracy in trying to protect them from Trump than Trump ever did. Well, I'm going to say it's a race to the bottom here. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, everybody remembers uh, Andy McCarthy. We've had him on a couple times on the podcast. He's just he's just an outstanding lawyer. Uh, he's a, a former prosecutor. Uh, he was the assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. He's a contributing editor at National Review, and he's the author of a book called Bowl of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency, about the 2016 election and the Russia collusion plot. Here's our interview. Andy, welcome back to the podcast. 
It's great to be with you guys. How are you? We're doing great. We're doing great, especially because you're here to explain this Durham report to us. So we've been waiting four years for the Durham investigation to come to a conclusion. It's done. He's issued his report. And of course, the uh, mainstream media is poo-pooing it, saying nothing to see here. I think the headline in the New York Times, Charlie Savage's column was, after years of political hype, the Durham inquiry failed to deliver. Did it fail to deliver? Well, you know, I mean, if if the idea of whether it delivers or not is who gets indicted, who gets charged by that measure, you know, the Mueller report, which they love, was also a, a kind of a dud uh, because it didn't it didn't capture or didn't find the thing they wanted it to find. So, no, I don't think so. I think that, you know, what we've talked about from the beginning of Durham's assignment is that this was mainly going to be about accountability. I didn't think he was going to be able to charge any, you know, grand conspiracy. I thought he wouldn't be able to prove any crimes. Part of what I think the downside of the investigation is, is that it looks like he did identify crimes that were prosecutable, but decided that he didn't have enough evidence to go forward. Which ones are those? But, well, for example, he, he um, concludes that there was a fraud perpetrated on the FISA court. And what I found to be the most frustrating part of it is, you know, he, he basically gets to the bottom line. He says, well, the headquarters people say this, and this was their recollection. And of course, he didn't talk to all the headquarters people, which is another baffling aspect of this. Uh, and then he says, the agents on the ground talk, uh, uh, this is their recollection of it. Uh, and because Steele is a British national, we couldn't compel him to cooperate. And Igor Danchenko was not available to us either. And therefore, even though the FISA court was lied to, um, we don't have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that we could charge a case based on. So it, I, I told everyone, Mark, all along that, you know, I'd be very surprised if, if Durham came up with the kind of charge that people were talking about and hoping for, at least on the Trump side, uh, at the beginning, which was this idea of a big corruption case against the uh, leadership of the FBI and other people in, in the government who may have been involved in this. And I always poo-pooed that because those cases are simply too difficult to bring. When you're dealing with high-level people who have capacious discretion in enforcing the law, and have um, a number of reasons why they might have acted, it's very hard to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they acted corruptly, which is what you have to do to make a case like that. But here we have a situation where, you know, there was a, there was a case there to be made. Uh, and he basically ends up saying, you know, we looked at this for four years, people's recollections are all over the place and we couldn't talk to two of the essential witnesses. So we have to punt. And, you know, I, I like Durham a lot. I think he's very scrupulous and he's he's uh, rigorous and methodical and all that stuff. But, you know, I, I was a prosecutor for 20 years. In a lot of cases, maybe even most criminal cases, you don't get to talk to all the essential witnesses. Because, like, the most essential witness is the defendant and he doesn't have to talk to you. So that's not usually a, a roadblock for making a case. And I have to say, looking at this, it's appalling to see that by the end of January 2017, 
They had gone to the FISA court twice without interviewing the main witness who was providing information, being Danchenko. To my mind, there's no excuse for not having spoken to him before you go to the FISA court the first time. But when they speak to him at the end of January, he tells them that there's nothing to the Steele dossier. It's fabricated. It's uh, exaggerated. Uh, none of it is reliable. And this is what they relied on in the first two applications for probable cause to get spy warrants. They then go back. First of all, the, the rules of the FISA court are once you find out that you have given the court misinformation, you are instantly supposed to go back to the court. You don't wait till the till the 90 day warrant runs out. You're supposed to go right back to the court and disclose. They not only don't do that when they do go back to the court to get the next warrant, you would think, by the way, that if your investigative theory isn't panning out, what most prosecutors do and investigators do is drop the case. These guys kept going back to the well. But they tell the court, we have now interviewed the primary subsource for the guy who wrote the dossier. The guy who wrote the dossier being Steele, the subsource being Danchenko. And we can report to the court that we found Danchenko to be credible. And then they leave it at that. So if you're the judge, you think, oh, okay, well, if they interviewed the source and he's credible, he must have been credible about the allegations that they've been bringing me. What they, what the FBI doesn't tell the court or apparently the Justice Department is they interviewed the, the subsource and he was credible. But what he was credible about was that all the allegations they had been bringing for months were nonsense. I don't, I, I can't even wrap my brain around how you do that. And then I don't mean to, to, you know, do a soliloquy here, but shortly after that, Jim Comey, then the FBI director, goes into the House of Representatives and gives public testimony. This is in March. During which he says, first of all, there is a counterintelligence investigation of the Trump campaign. The FBI never acknowledges that counterintelligence, that any investigation is being conducted, but counterintelligence is classified. They never talk about that. And he says at the end of those remarks, at the conclusion of the investigation, we'll explore whether anyone should be indicted. So given the state of what the FBI knew at that point, which was that their investigative theory, which they had been pursuing for by then seven months, hadn't panned out. They had given information to the court that turned out to be wrong. And the primary source of the information had just told them that the information they had been bringing the court under oath was nonsense. The director then goes out in public testimony and creates an impression that the president is in a conspiracy of cooperation with Putin and could be indicted at the end of it. I mean, how do you, I, I don't even, I can't even begin to explain that. So, Andy, let me step back for a second. We sort of jumped right into the middle of this. Yeah. So the Durham investigation is fundamentally a four-year investigation into how this happened. It's not clear to me, and I want to ask just a sort of a couple questions in one place for you. It's not clear to me, A, why did this take four years? And B, if this was an official investigation with the imprimatur of the U.S. government and the Justice Department on it, how it was that 
that some of the most principal figures, he didn't talk to Mueller, right? Did, did he talk to Comey? Do you simply get to say, hey, no, thanks, I'm, I'm, I'm out, you know, no, I don't want to. I don't understand some of the basics here. Can you help me and I hopefully our listeners understand what's going on? Yeah, well, Danny, I have to say on that last piece, what you're confused about is confusing to me, too, because at the same time that we're re- reading this and there are seemingly essential witnesses who don't get interviewed. I mean, Jim Comey doesn't get interviewed. Andy Page doesn't get interviewed. Peter Strzok doesn't get interviewed. Apparently, I don't know if he interviewed Lisa Page or not. I don't recall that. But, you know, at the same time, we're hearing that there's an investigation underway where a special counsel has been appointed to look at former President Trump in connection with the January 6th stuff and the uh, document retention down at Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, they're hauling Vice President Pence into the grand jury. They're hauling everybody into the grand jury. And when asked about it, they say, you know, obviously these are essential witnesses they have to be spoken to. So I, I find that to be a head scratcher. There's nothing that says that you have to interview people uh, if you think they're going to be uh, uncooperative or they're not going to advance the case, then you don't have to talk to them. But, you know, I think most prosecutors think that if you have an essential witness who's available, that you should speak to them. Can I interrupt you quickly? Yeah, of course. Maybe the press coverage I read of this was was wrong, but it at least suggested that these folks that Durham wanted to interview, I I don't know about Strzok or Page, but certainly certainly Comey and McCabe, and that they said no. Yeah, but he had, he's the the uh, thing about this investigation compared to say an inspector general investigation yeah. is he's got subpoena power. You know, the inspector general can't subpoena people and can only speak to people who are in the government. He can't come. You know, he, he can ask for cooperation, but he can't compel it. Um, Durham had subpoena power. He could have pulled anyone into the grand jury that he wanted to. And if they had some defense, like if they wanted to take the fifth or something, then you go from there. But you know what the great thing about being a prosecutor in terms of being able to get investigative information is you can compel it and the only way people can refuse to give it to you whether they want to be cooperative or not is if they have a legal privilege like uh, you know attorney client or fifth amendment or what have you but if they don't they have to they have to show up and testify and provide information so i find it baffling that some of the more important people in this investigation were not uh, spoken to. I, the only thing I can fathom is that they were so extensively interviewed by Horowitz, the inspector general, that Durham decided it wasn't necessary to go to that well again. But then if that was what he figured, then that plays into the criticism of him that his investigation was unnecessary because the inspector general had already done everything that there was to do. So I, I just, I frankly don't understand what his judgment was there as far as the business of how long this took it's a combination of factors i think you know number one durham has a very good reputation but he's never had a reputation for being rapid um (laughs) all of his all of his prior work that we know of and and this is like the third or fourth time he's been called on to do this kind of an investigation has been plotting you know he's he just he's very comprehensive and he's step by step and he's by the book and he doesn't leak and all those good things. Uh, but he takes a long time. And sometimes if you're, if what you're hoping for is accountability 
within a reasonable period of time that it's when it still matters to people, that is not your best approach. And I, you know, I say that with, uh, with due respect to the interest to be comprehensive and methodical. I mean, you got to cut through stuff a little faster. He had bad luck here because COVID hit, which meant for about 18 months or so, it was very hard to travel to see witnesses and, you know, to, to have people in the grand jury, <laughs> the ones you want to actually call into the grand jury, as it happens. Um, so that slowed him down. And then the other thing that was inevitably going to make this difficult, and I speak from some experience on this in terms of uh, the difference between, say, doing a, a national security case involving terrorism versus other kinds of crime, is if you're dealing with classified information, and particularly if you're dealing with foreign intelligence services that have important cooperative relationships with the United States, I imagine he had to fight a lot to get that kind of information because they just don't willingly give it. So that would have slowed him. That would have slowed anyone down. Fair enough. I want to pull a couple of threads uh, from this report with you. And let, let's start with Denchenko. So one of the things that I didn't realize until reading this report was that so Danchenko was the primary source for the Steele dossier. He claims that he was responsible for 80 percent of the content and 50 percent of the analysis. And they used that dossier to secure the warrants, as you said. He was under investigation, an unresolved counter-espionage investigations for ties to Russian intelligence that he had when he had worked at the Brookings Institution. He had gone to a colleague who he thought was about to join the Obama administration, asked if he would exchange classified information for money. And then they did a preliminary investigation and looked into him and found that he had ties to Russian intelligence. And Durham writes, and this is a quote, it is possible, Durham writes, quote, that the intelligence Danchenko was providing was in whole or in part Russian disinformation. I mean, how is that not a bombshell story? It's a bombshell story, I guess, Mark, that the, it, it, it did get attention when Danchenko was on trial because there was litigation. Remember, Durham uh, prosecuted three yep. cases, comparatively minor compared to the, you know, to the big scheme here, which was the collusion between the Clinton campaign and, and the government. But um, these were false statements cases. One of them was against the uh, FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, who pled guilty and got a slap on the wrist, unbelievably, in my mind, from the, the judge in his case is now the judge who runs the FISA court. James Boesberg uh, gave him a sentence of uh, 12 months of probation. I think an FBI lawyer who doctored a document that was being provided for a sworn application to the FISA court. And it's like, a slap on the wrist is is probably uh, uh, overstates how uh, overstates the seriousness of that sentence under those circumstances. Uh, and then there were two false statements cases that he brought that Durham brought against uh, Michael Sussman, who was the uh, Clinton lawyer who brought anti-Trump information data to, to uh, the FBI, pretending that he was not uh, working for the Clinton campaign at the time. And then the other case was Danchenko. And in the run-up to Danchenko's trial, there were um, what we call in the biz uh, motions in limine, which are motions where both sides litigate before trial what's going to be allowed to be presented in front of the jury. And one of the things that came up was how much uh, 
Durham would be allowed to bring out um, the fact that there was this prior investigation of Danchenko. So that's where that's where it reared its head. And you're quite right in describing it. This this goes on between 2009 2011. It's like a comedy of errors in that the FBI is so spun up about the possibility that uh, Danchenko is a Russian asset that they asked to get FISA coverage on him to, to do a FISA warrant, just like they did on Carter Page, because he not only goes to, to Brookings and allegedly offers money for classified information, when the FBI begins to investigate this, they find that he is he has close connections to two people that they have FISA investigations on who are tied to Russia and also has been in and out of the Russian uh, embassy in Washington, where he's had meetings with uh, with people there as well, presumably sources, and may even have offered to work for Russian intelligence explicitly uh, in that context. So they want to get FISA coverage on him. He's working at Brookings at the time. And while they're assembling the FISA application, they come to believe that he has gone, that he's left, that he's gone back to Russia. Uh, so they dropped the whole thing. And it turned out he hadn't gone back to Russia. Well, maybe he went back for a while, but he was right in Washington under their nose the whole time. Uh, and he didn't, and they didn't pursue the FISA. And then it just seems to have dropped into a black hole. And when it emerged that he, that Danchenko was working with steel, evidently not only did no one go back and instantly do a background check and find this, uh, information that they had an unresolved issue with him with respect to whether he was connected to Russian intelligence or not. It seems to me that they go out of their way not to resolve that. And then even worse, they sign him up as a paid informant. So he sits down with them at the end of January, which I you know just railed about a few minutes ago, um, tells them that the steel stuff is all nonsense. And, the result of that is that rather than just drop the investigation, they end up designating him or signing him up as a paid informant, giving them information about Russia. They never get to the bottom of actual, of whether he was actually a Russian asset or not. They basically don't pursue it with him. They don't ask him. Uh, and then they pay him and they paid him a couple of hundred thousand dollars over the next few years. And I, I hate to be cynical about this, but it seemed to me that the main reason they designated him as a confidential informant was to make him more difficult for the inspector general to interview. Because I don't believe I, I'm not I don't think Horowitz ever interviewed him. And correct me if I'm wrong, but while they were vetting him to become a paid confidential human informant, the the vetting officials actually raised this. And they brushed it off and they actually falsely claimed that there was no derogatory information about him and that he had not been a prior subject of an FBI investigation. So they lied. Correct. Correct. That's my uh, that's my recollection of it. Uh, Is is that a criminal? uh, Should that be prosecuted? Yeah, well, you know, look, I, I think all of this stuff where you're talking about false statements being made to people is all potentially actionable. But then you have to investigate it and. I think what people's frustration is, I know my frustration is, um, you know, I, what Durham comes back with is, is kind of, uh, yeah, we looked at this, 
um, and we couldn't get to the bottom of it, and we didn't have anyone we could make a case against beyond a reasonable doubt, so we didn't bring the case. And in the meantime, I'm, I have to scratch my head because he did bring these cases against Sussman and Danchenko, and we may have talked about them at the time. I didn't see how on earth he was going to, going to get convictions on those cases. Like th- These are cases he decided to bring that I think he had very minimal percentage chance of, of getting convictions on, not just because they were in Washington, so he was dealing with what would be a hostile uh, jury pool, but also because it seemed to me that his theory of the case was that the FBI had been duped by the misinformation that was provided. And the more rational interpretation of the evidence was that the FBI was in on it. So it was going to be very hard to get the to get a jury to find that the FBI um, was, was materially misled such that it affected the way that they conducted their investigation because I don't, I don't see any evidence of that. So you brought me exactly to the question I was about to ask you. So we've been talking about sort of, we, we dove right in without any overview at all. But you wrote a piece that I thought really um, encapsulated the problem. Uh, and the headline says it all. The FBI didn't ignore Russian intel on Hillary's plan to smear Trump. It abetted the plan. Can you just talk a little bit about how this happens? Uh, what, what you, obviously none of us can say what they're thinking, but how their, what looks like their plan actually ends up working. Yeah, I, 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 where I part company, Danny, most directly and consequentially with Durham is I think he's got a benign interpretation, not a flattering one, but a benign interpretation of how the FBI reacted to the disclosure in the intelligence community in July of 2016 that our spies, our spy agencies had insight into Russian intelligence, which I take to mean they somehow, they either had a a source or they got a a FISA intercept or something. But um, they learned that the Russians were saying that there was a plan of the Clinton campaign which Hillary had uh, approved. I think they even had a date that they said that she had approved it. July 26, 2016. Right. Okay. So, and that's important, I guess, because that's just like three days before they open Crossfire Hurricane. Like they open it, or maybe five days before. But anyhow, they they say that you know they have this plan, and she approved it, and they're trying to smear Trump as a Russian asset. So I think. There's been a lot of talk about this, which has gotten hung up on nonsense. Like, for example, it really doesn't matter whether the Russians believe this or not, or whether they were just floating it out there uh, because they like to float things out uh, to make us get spun up. To me, that's a side issue. It also doesn't matter if there's, you know, really evidence that Hillary at some formal meeting approved this gambit because it's, it's abundantly obvious that that is exactly what the plan of the Clinton campaign was, and they acted on it. So whether the Russians believed it or not, and or whether they had any hearing or meeting about it at the campaign or not, it's it's very clear that this was the Hillary Clinton campaign plan, and there's tons of, of evidence of that. 
what Durham's criticism of the FBI is that when they were evaluating the information they were getting from Steele that they brought to the FISA court, they didn't factor in the reporting about Russian intelligence and therefore consider the possibility that what they were giving the court was Russian information or misinformation. And I don't, you know, with due respect again to Durham, to my mind, that's not what happened here. I don't think they ignored this reporting. I mean, this reporting, so far as we understand it, it came into some component of the intelligence community, probably the NSA. It was it was initially uh, given to the CIA, and Brennan, who was then the CIA director, is said to have thought it was serious enough that they briefed President Obama, Vice President Biden, Susan Rice, who was the national security advisor at the time, uh, Sally Yates at the Justice Department, and Comey at the FBI. I don't think Comey was going to ignore information that came from Brennan and Clapper that they all thought was serious enough to brief Obama on. The, the last thing Comey's going to do is just shrug his shoulders and ignore that. Um, I, so I don't think they ignored this information at all. I think Durham's report makes it very clear that the FBI was intimidated by Hillary Clinton and believed she was going to be the next president and that there might be reprisals against FBI agents for the investigations of Clinton. Uh, they have this vignette in the report where, you know, Lisa Page says to, to Peter Strzok, who's about to go interview Hillary in connection with the, the Clinton emails scandal, um, you know, tread lightly here. She's going to be the next president and she's going to take it out on the FBI if we go too hard on them. And you can see that that was, that was their attitude about it in various different iterations of the investigation, including that there were, besides Russiagate, there were apparently uh, at least two other efforts by uh, foreign countries to infiltrate Clinton's campaign to make illegal campaign donations and the like. And the Bureau basically hand-wrung for a while uh, and then dropped those investigations. They decided, you know, let's give her a defensive briefing um, because their goal with Clinton was to keep her out of trouble, not to make a case on her. Uh, and that was only after, like, doing nothing for months with this information. Whereas with Trump, they, you know, the minute they got sketchy information, before they even interviewed a witness, they opened up a full investigation on him. So it's a very different um, tack. But I think they were intimidated by Clinton. They thought she was going to be the next president and that they decided that if her pitch was that Trump was a Putin puppet, they were going with the Putin puppet narrative. And I don't see anything in what Durham found that's inconsistent with that theory of the case. Just to summarize, so they ignored the possibility that this whole thing could have been Russian disinformation from Danchenko, who had asked somebody to spy on the Obama administration in exchange for money, who had relations with Russian intelligence, and who was the primary source of the Steele dossier. And they ignored the Russian connection and the possibility that this was all Russian disinformation. They also ignored intelligence that they had, which was serious enough that they briefed the president of the United States that this could have all been a plot by the Hillary Clinton campaign to vilify Donald Trump. So that's all ignored. Then the other thing that Durham says, which is shocking to me, 
is he says they didn't even believe that they had probable cause for these warrants. Going back to right. th- there's an exchange with a uh, with t- the FBI liaison in London when they're going to interview the uh, Australians about the Papandopoulos meeting. And the liaison says says that it's flimsy. One of them says, damn, that's thin. And the other one goes, I know it sucks. And Durham says, quote, that the FBI personnel later acknowledged both then and in hindsight that they did not genuinely believe there was probable cause to believe the target, former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page, was knowingly engaged in clandestine intelligence activities on behalf of a foreign power. And they still went and went to the FISA court to get surveillance. So yeah, they, they didn't not even only... believe their own case. No, they not not only that, Mark. Before they went to the FISA court, the Justice Department gave them, to its credit, gave them a very hard time about Steele's background and the possibility of bias and that he might be presenting biased information. And they got overwritten the uh, the Justice Department lawyers by McCabe and Comey. I mean, basically, they slammed this thing through and and you know, made sure that everybody understood that the, the leadership of the FBI wanted this uh, and they were able to overrun these uh, National Security Division lawyers at the Justice Department. The only reason you do that, the only reason that you would conceal the patent indicia of bias on the part of Steele is because they knew they needed his allegations to get over the probable cause hurdle. And if a court had discounted Steele's allegations because of a finding that he was biased and and had a motive to to make up things about Trump, then they would have been left without any FISA. That would have there would have been no FISA because they didn't have probable cause. They all acknowledged that they went out of their way to get the FISA coverage here, and they did it you know, when it was still ringing in their ears that there was this intelligence out there that the, you know, the Russians believed that Clinton was smearing Trump as a Putin puppet. So I I just, I don't think they ignored it. I I just think that they decided that this is what Clinton, Clinton was going to be the next president. This was the story Clinton was running with. And I don't think it mattered to them that it, that what difference would it have made to them that it was Russian disinformation as long as it was what Clinton was running with. Now, I don't mean to be cavalier in saying that. It should have made a great deal of difference to people who put their name on FISA applications that were going to the court under oath. You have an obligation not only to say things that are true to the court, but also uh, to not create misimpressions and to not withhold or conceal material information that, that uh, is important to the court's determination of whether there's probable cause or not. And it's a higher obligation in FISA than it is in the normal criminal case, because in a criminal case, everybody knows there's going to be an indictment and everything that you represent to a court as a government official is going to be turned over to the defense and discovery. So they'll be able to find out if you misled the court. Whereas in FISA, the only due process anyone ever gets is if the FBI and the Justice Department play it by the book when they go to the FISA court, meaning give them uh, information that they've corroborated. It is, after all, called a verified application. They're supposed to verify it before they go to the court. Um, they, they're supposed to have backup for the factual allegations that they make. 
They're not supposed to say anything to the court that they don't believe is true. And they're supposed to be completely transparent when it comes to um, what we on the criminal law side would call impeachment material. You know, anything that would go to the honesty or the motivation of people that you're getting important information from. And I don't see that they did any of those things. Talk a little bit about the falsification of evidence, because Charlie Savage of The New York Times has been slamming me on Twitter because in my Washington Post column, I said that Klein Smith had falsified information to the FISA court. That I mean, the the judge of the FISA court basically said that she said in her in her order that uh, that when FBI personnel mislead the National Security Division in ways described, they equally mislead the FISC, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. I mean, withholding information, exculpatory information, is falsification, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, look, I I, I hope uh, you know, I hope Charlie's getting a good pat on the back. On this Clark Smith case, because I had a I had a row with him over that as well. I don't know. Uh, I don't quite know what that's about. And I do. Um, I, I'm sure I started our conversation by saying how much I like Durham, right? Because I, I find myself being very critical here. But um, one of the things I couldn't understand that Durham did was he allowed Klein Smith to plead guilty while, in a Janice-like fashion. Um, maintaining that he hadn't meant to deceive anyone. (laughs) Like, I made a false statement, but I wasn't trying to mislead the court. How do you accidentally alter an email? (laughs) Well, yeah, no, that's exactly right. My fingers slipped. (laughs) Yeah, and, and how did he alter it? You know, he said, like, he was not a CIA informant when it turned out that he was a CIA informant. You know, this is not a, like, not is is a kind of important word in witness reporting. But I really think that I found it frustrating that Durham allowed Kleinsmith to have a plea deal on those terms. I, you know, the normal thing, at least in, in my old office, and certainly when I was doing cases back in the day, was uh, if you were giving somebody a plea agreement, then the understanding was the allocution to the court had to be uh, satisfactory. So I would not let somebody plead guilty who said, well, what I said wasn't accurate, but I didn't mean to deceive anyone. If that's your position, then I think what you should say to that person is, well, we'll see at your trial um, and and prove it in, prove in court exactly what happened. Instead, I don't know if they were just anxious to get, like, you know, get a number up on the scoreboard because there had been so much criticism of the investigation that, like, you know, there were no cases and nothing uh, seemed to be coming out of this. So I guess he wanted to get a conviction up on the board. And this guy was willing to plead guilty, but he wasn't willing to say that he meant to deceive anyone. And if you're pleading guilty to false statements, it's an essential element of the case that you're doing that on purpose and you willfully meant to deceive someone. So if he wouldn't say that in open court, then I don't think he should have been allowed to plead guilty. And the fallout of it was exactly the sentence that we talked about before, where the head of the FISA court gives gives him a sentence of 12 months of probation. Now, to me, a government lawyer who misleads the court under those circumstances should have had to do time. Uh, And I'm not saying he necessarily had to do five years, which is the maximum sentence for a false statement, but to give somebody 12 months probation as if this was not a serious matter 
to me is inexplicable. But maybe the only way it gets to be explicable as far as the judge is concerned is if the prosecutor thinks it's okay for him to take the position, well, what I said or did was inaccurate, but I didn't mean to deceive anyone. Under circumstances where it's patently clear that he was trying to deceive someone, then, you know, if the prosecutor is going to allow the defendant to take that position, it's almost asking the court to treat the case like it's not serious. Mistakes were made. So yeah, mistakes were made. The passive voice, the passive voice for plea bargaining. I I love that. That's great. It's amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much, Andy. That was so enlightening. You're such a great explainer, and uh, I think we're all uh, better informed about what this is all about. Take care. Thank you so much. It was a delight. Thank you. Take care. So you said, how can it be that Trump is terrible, and also that our institution, the FBI, is so terrible? And two things can be true at once. Yeah, Andy. It can both be true that Donald Trump tried to overthrow our election results and lied to the American people about the election being stolen and that the FBI engaged in a political effort to try and destroy him uh, through an... Uh, through an and to uh, try to throw the 2016 election. I cr- think exactly. I know. Okay, that's, that's fine. But I got to tell you, how do we get out of this? H- how do we do better? How do we end up in a situation where we rectify the manifest outrages committed by the FBI and others in service of their political agenda, and how do we get rid of the nightmare that is Donald Trump and his endless serial lies about the 2020 election? I just, don't we deserve better? We do. Well, I mean, the vast majority of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch, and that seems to be where we're heading. I mean, the answer is for the Republican Party to pick somebody else. And truth be told, you'll never be able to fix this with Trump as the president or as the nominee because the the institutions will dig in and the media will dig in and everybody else will. You know, why are they, why are they dismissing this as nothing to see here right now? Because if it was something to see, it would help Trump. So again, the media is continuing to, to downplay this uh, because... It's politically justified because it can help Trump. So we've got to get past Trump in order to fix these problems. We need we need a new president who's not Biden, who's not Trump, who's going to go to the bottom of this and and uh, and clean it up. Okay. Well, there that was very simple. Exactly. Thank you. And Mark. we can have a whole podcast on how, how that can happen. We did with Carl a few yep. weeks ago, and we can continue to talk about it. Yeah. Well, we're going to have an opportunity. We've got new Republicans in the race every day, apparently. <laughs> so we'll be talking about that and lots more. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 